The following sermon was delivered on February 7, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Organizing pastor Dr. Joseph A. Piper Jr. preached this sermon entitled The Dignity and Duty of the Church on 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. There's a way that uh, church reclamation is like the reclamation of uh, street people, our drug addicts. Street people sometimes are in a condition not because of their own choices, but in God's providence. They have been shut off from family, from means of income, or whatever, and groups like Miracle Hill or Salvation Army will invest a great deal in those people to uh, get them back on their feet. Now, in drug rehab, of course, the person's there because of a sin, but again, there are people invest in that person, time and energy and money, so that man or that woman might become a, a responsible citizen, and particularly a responsible servant of the Lord God. Well, that's how I want you to think about reclamation of churches like Antioch. It's not something that is easy. It's not something that a lot of folks are behind. In fact, even as we started this project, there were those who said that we shouldn't do this. We have churches, we have Roebuck, we have Reedville, we have uh, Woodruff Road, and we could turn this into a funeral chapel or something like that. Why the expense? Why the time? Why do these borrowed elders invest? Why are so many of you having to do so many things? Is it worth it? And sometimes you're going to ask yourself that question. Probably some of you already have. Is this really worth it? Was this, in fact, a wise decision? What motivates us? to try to reclaim a church that uh, through a series of providences had come to the point that basically was even off of life support. The church would either shut its doors permanently or for the time being, or somebody like us would come in. Well, to motivate you, I want you to think this afternoon about what Paul says here about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly the dignity and duty of the church. Now, what we have in our text is the larger purpose statement for this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy and through Timothy to the church. We saw in the very beginning, the very conclusion of the book is the personal pronoun, the plural you, grace to you all. So written to Timothy as the evangelist that was there, but written for the church, not just in those days, because Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness for the church in every age. Now, we began in chapter 1, and we saw that Paul's, one of his purposes was, I've left you, he says to Timothy, in Ephesus, that you might correct the false teachers. And so in chapter 1, he deals with this matter of false teaching over against that, showing what the true gospel and relationship of law and gospel is all about, all to the glory of God. In chapters 2 and 3, he now is dealing with the structure of the church. All this is for the church. Deal with false teachers now. The structure of the church, um, the church's vision for the lost and her prayers and corporate worship, the role of men in corporate worship, the role of women in corporate worship in the life of the church. And then as we've seen in the most here of chapter 3, the qualifications for those through whom Christ will lead His church, elders and deacons. We consider those as 
personal qualifications and domestic qualifications and ecclesiastical or church qualifications. And in the midst of the instructions to the deacons, he also talks about the wives of officers and lists out four very important qualifications that should be in their lives. So he comes now at the end there, about to wrap up this section on the structuring of the church and gives the full purpose statement for the letter. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. In these two verses, we see that the church, as the household of God, is to be the pillar and support of God's truth. The church is the household of the living God, is to be the pillar and support of the truth. So I want to deal first with the dignity of the church, as Paul lays that out here, and then the duty or duties of the church. Well, 14a and most of 15 deal with the dignity of the church. Now, Paul begins by laying a foundation, so to speak, out of which he's going to speak to the duty of the church, and that was this purpose that he had in writing uh, this letter to Timothy. He said, I'm writing these things to you, verse 14, hoping to come to you before long. So remember, he's left Timothy in Ephesus to start dealing with false teachers. But he says, I'm hoping to join you there in Ephesus. But in case I am delayed, I write. You know, I'm very appreciative for Paul's delays. We've got the book of Romans because he was delayed. We got this pastoral epistle because he knew he was going to be delayed. And what riches God has given to us in these providential delays. And that really does speak to us. We all have delays in our lives, don't we? And those delays can frustrate us to no end. But start looking for God's goodness in our delays as we find them right here in the delays of the apostle. Now, we need to address an issue. He says, he's already said, I've left you there in Ephesus. And now he says that I hope to see you. But do you remember what he said to the elders in Acts chapter 20? You no longer see me face to face. So was that a, a mistake? And, uh, well, God's changed that. Well, it's in Scripture, so and there are things in Scripture that are not necessarily true, but when the apostle asserts something like that in the midst of such serious instruction, I take that as inspired utterance. So how do we reconcile that? Well, I think it's exactly the same way that we reconcile what happens there in Ephesus. Paul didn't go to Ephesus. He stayed at the port of Miletus. He summoned the elders to come to him because he had spent so much time there, he knew if he'd gone into Ephesus, he'd never get away. And this is what he's done with Timothy. He dropped Timothy off on his way to Macedonia at a port like Miletus, went on about his business, and now he's saying, I'm hoping to come and see you. But not the church. Paul had other things to do. He left Timothy there with that church. So I just think that's the easiest explanation. There's a thing in philosophy called Occam's razor, and the easiest explanation is usually the best. We don't have to get all convoluted. Well, maybe he just saw uh, he was never back in ministry. They wouldn't see him again preaching or whatever. No, it's just very simple. And we've got the pattern of what he's already done. So Paul dropped Timothy off on his way to Macedonia, right across the sea uh, to Greek, Greece, 
And he says, I'm hoping on my journeys to stop off and see you again. But if I'm delayed, if I'm delayed, then I'm writing this so you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. So here's that purpose statement. Notice the one there in verse uh, 15 that, uh, are, that it's, 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 it's general. It's not how, Timothy, you ought to behave yourself. It's how those in the church need to behave themselves. And then it gets to the why. You see, why is it important that you and I know how to behave ourselves in the church of God? Well, Paul now unpacks the dignity of the church with two uh, phrases. To conduct oneself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. First, Paul speaks about the church as God's household. This has two aspects to this image. First term, household, would bring to our mind God's temple, because God's temple is, in fact, called his house, often in Scripture. One example would be 2 Chronicles 5.13, as the tabernacle is being brought into the temple, uh, and the Levites are praising God, and in verse 13, he indeed is good for his loving kindness is everlasting. Then the house, and that's the temple, the house of the Lord, there's our phrase, was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. And so the church of the old covenant looked on the temple as the house of God. And that meant that in a very peculiar and special manner, God dwelt in that house. This glory that filled the house when the tabernacle was brought in was the symbolic presence, symbol of God's presence. That's why in Solomon's prayer of dedication for the temple, when the people were to pray, wherever they were, they were to pray toward the temple, to the east. That's why Daniel had to open his window, and, and he wasn't trying to flaunt the law, but that's, that was his habit. Opened his window, prayed toward Jerusalem, to the temple, because there God, in a very special manner, was enthroned. So the house of the God would immediately bring to mind anyone that knew the Scripture that the church is God's temple. But of course, we know that that temple was fulfilled in whom? In the one who said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it. The temple itself was a picture, a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, who now no longer is a symbol of God dwelling in the presence of men, but God himself dwelling in the presence of men and gathering his people unto himself. Now as the living head of the church, he makes us his temple. Peter unpacks this in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, where he relates Christ being the temple and I being the temple in verse 4, coming to him, to Christ, as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, temple language, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which became the builders 
rejected, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. For they stumble because they're disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. And so the transition here, Christ, the living temple of God, the cornerstone, builds us on the foundation of the apostles into a living temple. We are the house of God. We are the spiritual priesthood as this house of God. And as we had in our meditation from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the spirit of the triune God dwells in the midst of this house of God, bringing us into union with the triune God, just as he dwells in your heart if you've been born again and brings you into union with the triune God, boys and girls. That's a very exciting and serious uh, concept to think about. All of us to think about it. The Spirit of God dwells in us. And as the family of God, He dwells in our midst. And we need to behave then with this realization. That we're, the, we're the household of God. This holy God is, is dwelling here with us. It's quite wonderful. And of course, the present is most marked in corporate worship. As we saw, for example, in Psalm 87, that God comes to us in a very peculiar way. And that's why that worship has its bookends. That's why it begins with a call to worship and concludes with a benediction. And that's why, as I said last week, there are certain protocols that we find in Scripture about dress and posture and language that we want to use to make us mindful of the fact that we indeed have come into the holy temple of God. But there's something else, isn't there, to the idea of house, and that is a family. A family. In fact, even here in the context of 1 Timothy chapter 3, remember Paul's thing, if, if, if elders cannot manage their own household, how can they manage what? The church. And there he compares the church to a household, to, to a family. And this is also something very common in Scripture, that God the Father, has, as He's called us through the Spirit on the basis of the work of Christ, has adopted us as His sons and daughters and incorporated us into His family, which is in every expression of the visible church. We and our children now are brought into this relationship. Now, in our New Testament reading, the Apostle joins together the concept of uh, family and temple. If you think back to that language, verse 19, So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, you're fellow citizens with, uh, with the saints and are of God's household. There's the family language. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles, Jesus Christ, himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing up into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So as the temple of God, we are the family of God, we are in the household of God, we are knit together by the Spirit as we are joined together with the Lord God. Now you begin to see what I mean by the dignity of the church. And Paul's talking here about the visible church. He's not talking about some 
vague, amorphous expression of the elect through all the ages. It wouldn't make sense, anything that he says. No, he's talking about the visible church as she is defined for us in our confession of faith. Chapter 25, paragraph 2, the visible church, which is also Catholic or universal, in other words, throughout the world, under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the language. Kingdom, house, and family of God, out of which there's no ordinary possibility of salvation. You see, we're beginning to see in the dignity of the church the absolute necessity of the visible church. But let's move on a bit before we look more into that. So that's the first phrase he uses. Now, the second one then, notice there's a relative pronoun there. So he defines this household of God, which, well, namely, what is this household of God? It's the church of the living God. Now, the term church is a term that the Holy Spirit prepared for the New Testament writers in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Out of regular Greek, it had to do with the uh, public assembly. And it's used that way, for example, in uh, the New Testament. But it was used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, for the Hebrew words of congregation and assembly. And you remember Stephen uses the term then about the church in the wilderness, and he uses uh, this word. We, we talked about ecclesiastical qualifications. Well, that comes from this word for church. It's, uh, it's ecclesiastical. It's, it's the church. So now we see that this house of God, this temple, is the gathered people of God, the gathered people of the living God. Now, living God is an living is an attribute of God. It's about the third and fourth word in, in uh, Confession, chapter 2, as, as it begins to define God in, in paragraph 1. He's living and true. And the idea of a living God uh, contrasts him to all of the idols and uh, the dead objects that are worshipped by men. Jeremiah uses it in Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 10, in this very manner. But the Lord is the true God. He's the living God and the everlasting King. The living God and the everlasting King. So the God who is the triune living God, over against all false gods who are dead and profitless, this is the God who is gathering a people unto himself in and through the church, which is the household of this living God, into this holy temple, into this family relationship. And he does so through the power of the gospel. As God calls through the gospel and the spirit regenerates on the basis of the perfect work of Christ, men and women, boys and girls are brought to saving faith and are made a part of this family of God. It really is a neat thing, isn't it, boys and girls, to think about the fact that you've got a family with wonderful parents, but you've got something else. 
You've been baptized into the church. You are part of God's family. That's why we can teach you to pray uh, the Lord's Prayer. Why we can teach you that God loves you. Now, you must make covenant with God and not just assume that because you've been baptized into the covenant family that you'll become a full possessor. But God's made precious promises to you, and it's very important that you take hold of those promises. Of course, that's true for all of us, isn't it? As we think this afternoon about the beauty and glory of the church, I'm not asking you if you are a physical member of the church, but do you know that you've been incorporated into Christ? Has this living God grabbed hold of your heart and brought you to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Remember what we read uh, earlier there, that uh, those who are not in Christ, who stumble at Him, then that stone edifice will fall on them and destroy them. If you're not in God's family by regeneration and faith as an adult, you are in the family of Satan. You might feel very profitable. You might have a good life, but you know what? You're eating the husk of the, of, of the pigs, just like the, the profligate son. That's all you have. You're drinking poison. You're sleeping out just like a homeless person because the devil is an awful, awful vehement and vile taskmaster. But you can have God as your father. If you repent of your sins and come to him. Ah, to be in this church of the living God, in this family. And it just reminds us then of what, this is what, what we're about. This is what we want to see happen. We want to see a family put together here. This is why uh, being a congregation is much more than coming to uh, one or two worship services. It's why you come to prayer meeting. But it's why we have fellowship together. We learn to love each other. We learn to weep with those that weep and, and rejoice with those that rejoice and live as a family. That's a problem today in the churches, isn't it? There's so many churches that they're not family. Often they're too big to be family. I constantly meet people at the church we go in the morning and they've been there for five years. And I'm just now getting to get to meet them. How can you have family? We're family. And it also means that we bear with one another, as a good family does. We don't wear our feelings on our sleeves, but we uh, forbear and we love and we help and we support. This is the dignity of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this leads into the duty of the church. Paul changes the figure now. He says that this is how you ought to conduct yourself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Now he changes the description of the church more to its function than to its dignity. This is why I talk about the duty of the church, the pillar and support of the truth. Now, we, we all recognize these uh, figures, uh, a pillar upholds uh, a roof or a colonnade or gives support. Even pillars under our houses give support. And a foundation is that very sturdy structure on which a building uh, is established. And so by these two figures, the Paul is speaking to us of the church's role uh, in the world with respect to what? The Bible. Pillar and support of the truth, 
The truth of God for us is in the Bible and nowhere else. We have our summaries of the truth of the Bible in our confession catechisms, but they're, they're binding and accurate because they are simply expressions of what the Bible says. So the church is to be the pillar and support of the truth of God. This gets to the heart of, of what we're to do, what Paul wanted Timothy to be, what Paul wanted that church to be, what God wants this church to be, amongst other things. Well, from this idea of pillar and support, we can derive two things. The first is the scriptures belong to the church. You need to understand that. The scriptures belong to the church. Here we must distinguish between what is referred to as general or natural revelation and special revelation. Uh, our confession makes a very useful distinction with respect to these two things in the very opening paragraph. Although the light of nature and the work of creation, works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men in the unexcusable yet they're not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in divers manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will, that his will unto his church and afterwards for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and the world to commit the same holy unto writing which maketh the holy scriptures to be most necessary. We can summarize this by three things. In the first place, general revelation is what we see in creation and providence. And special revelation is what we find in the Word of God. Second, general revelation is sufficient to leave people without excuse. Um, I can remember as a, as a young Christian evangelizing, and in those days they were always throwing the question at you, what about the people in Africa who never heard the gospel? Well, Paul answers that, you see, in Romans chapter 2. Conscience, general revelation that is suppressed by the natural man is the basis of judgment of all those who have not heard the gospel. Uh, whereas special revelation reveals to us how to be right with God. But the third distinction, and why it's called general and special in particular, is general is to mankind, special is to the church. As we read here, the scriptures were written for and given to the church. That's what Paul means when he says that it's the pillar and support of the church. And that speaks to us then of uh, the very important obligation. So that leads to a second thing that grows out of this. The first is this contrast between general and special. The second, then, what obligations uh, do the church have in terms of uh, being the pillar and support of truth. And I'm going to give it to you in three Ps. Uh, to preserve, peruse, and proclaim. This is how we function as the pillar and support of the truth. We first are called on by God as pillar and support of truth to preserve the truth, to defend the truth. And that means that... Uh, God has given to his church this responsibility to keep the scriptures, to keep them well, to keep them in the common language of the people. 
and to pass them on from generation to generation. Now there's been times the church failed at that, isn't there? So we think of uh, the days of King Josiah and uh, the scriptures were put away in a treasury chest in the temple at the bottom of it. Uh, the church had not actively been <laughs> preserving uh, or defending uh, the scripture. I think about the Middle Ages where the church was kept in Latin, and even then, the Bible would have been chained to the pulpit. And even when there were a few English Bibles in England, they had to be chained to the pulpit. They weren't available to the people of God, to the family, to the church. But uh, we are to be responsible for preserving the truth of Scripture, defending the truth of Scripture. And that does call us as well to an apologetic act. Part of being ready to give an answer for the faith that's in us is to uh, be able to tell people why we accept the Bible as the Word of God. And it's particularly the church that does that. And we know that the Bible is self-attesting. And the ultimate authority for the Bible is the Spirit bearing testimony to us as it's read and preached. But remember those words of Augustine that the Romanist abused, and that is it was because of the church that he accepted the Scriptures. Not that they were the Word of God, but the church's testimony to the scriptures encouraged him to take up and read. We must bear consistent testimony that this Bible is the word of God. It must be in the language of the people. That's why many people um, don't like all these modern versions of the Bible because they don't belong to the church. They belong to the publisher. Some foundation. That is the only the most singular argument for a King James Bible it was authorized once upon a time by a church. And over a day when once again the church of Jesus Christ can authorize one of these translations or go together and, and write a new one, but take it away from the publishers who invariably begin to ruin it with gender-inclusive language and, and everything else and to do what sells. Oh, it belongs to the church. We're to preserve it and defend it. Then we're to peruse it. Now, some of you might think peruse means to read quickly, but that's one of these things where you've changed the trimming of the word. Peruse actually means to study very carefully. And as a church, the Church of Jesus Christ has been called to peruse, to study carefully the Word of God. In fact, it's through the church's perusal of Scripture that we have developed our dogmatics. I've been having to do a lot of review the last uh, few days on the doctrine of the Trinity for our conference. And you get back into the history of the church and you see how God used the church hammering and studying and laboring because the scripture is not a systematic theology textbook. The Trinity is never spelled out in the word of God. We have to build line upon line, precept upon precept. We must infer from scripture the truth of these things. It's there. But God, in his glorious providence, has age after age brought the church with the Spirit to come and study the Scriptures and, and build this foundation. And then in the Reformation, it just comes to such a, a glorious expression that the church must still study the Scriptures. Seek the mind of God as church. And of course, we have confessions and catechisms and that are the, the summary of these things. And they aid us both in the defense of the truth, as Paul will say to Timothy in 2 Timothy 
1, 13 and 14. Hold fast to the tradition, guard the treasure that's been delivered to you, but also is for us the expression of faith of what the church has come to through centuries and millennia of study. But all this leads into the proclamation of the truth. It's not a little secret to be kept locked up, chained to the pulpit, kept in a, a language that is not familiar to the great majority of the people. Now that's why I used uh, uh, Psalm 96 as the call to worship. We're to worship God and we're to proclaim the good news. That's the Hebrew word for the gospel. And that's what we're to do as we worship God. So the church is for the gathering and perfecting of the elect. And uh, we gather them through preaching and evangelism plugged into preaching. We perfect them through the life of mentoring and discipleship and covenant nurture of our children. But the centerpiece of all that is the proclamation of the Word of God. The Word of God. Proclaim it and preach it. That's what God's called the church to do. That's why God has dignified the church. That's what we do as the kingdom and the and the family of God. So yeah, what we're about isn't too romantic. I sometimes sit in the chair in my study and I'm tired and I'm wondering what in the world. I was talking to a friend from Houston and all I wanted to say was, what in the world am I doing? And you're going to feel that way at times. This is why we're doing what we're doing. Because the church is the household, the family of the living God is called then to be the pillar and support of the truth. This becomes a great motivation to us to labor in these days of small things and to make the sacrifices. It'd be a lot easier for any of us to be at the church where we've been. It's easy, it's, it's comfortable. Well, at least my church is. Um, but how we need these churches built for Christ throughout Spartanburg and Greenville and then throughout South Carolina and, and on and on and on that the kingdom might come. Well, that's what we're about. We want to do it as a family. We want to do it loving one another, above all, loving the Lord. We want to worship Him well because that is where His presence in our midst is most wonderfully manifested. And you see then how this relates to the sacraments. I've already spoken to you children. You've been baptized into the church. That is the formal entrance. Either at birth or upon profession of faith, baptism is the mark of membership in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as there are adults who make a profession of faith, like Simon the magician, who wasn't converted, he still was a member of the church until he proved himself to be unconverted. You boys and girls are members of the church. Now, it's my plea to God that you won't show yourself to be unconverted and be put out, but that you have a new heart from the Savior already, and you will always be loving Christ. And you'll long, as you watch us come to the Lord's table, you'll long for the day. And you can do that. Of course, this is what this supper's all about, too, isn't it? It's a family meal. We've been admitted into the church. We're in God's family. 
God now calls his family to come eat with him and of him in this feast. In this feast. But you must be a truly professing member of an evangelical church because it's a family meal. It's not for somebody that's walking down the street and they see the lights in your dining room and decide to come in and eat with you. No, it's a family meal. But it also is a meal by which God confirms to us that we belong. We belong to this family. And may the Spirit testify that to you even as we come together this afternoon. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.